I want to tell you a story, a very old story this morning. You could even call it a, a Mother's Day story, but it's got a unique slant for the special day. You'll have to wait to see how it ties in. The story's told through the vehicle of both prose and poetry. It's preserved within an ancient book of the Old Testament. The poetic version may even be one of the very oldest pieces of writing in the whole Bible, composed very soon after the original event and preserved with care to tell the tale in an emotional field way. It's a victory hymn after a remarkable demonstration of God's power and his greatness. And it's also a song that celebrates the lives of those who willingly served as agents of God's purpose. Now, it's important for you to know a little bit about the historic context of the story, the times. So, to put it bluntly, they were quite literally some of the worst of times in a lot of ways. Some three to four centuries fell between the time of Joshua's strong leadership over the tribes of Israel up until the rise of the monarchy when King Saul came to the throne. But it was a series of ups and downs that the tribes were scattered into all different various geographic areas and there was a little cohesion to their overall relationship and often it was tension filled and the people of the land with whom they had to share things worshipped many false gods. And a lot of them, the children of Israel, had recklessly embraced themselves and it always led them down this predictable path towards sin. It was a, a, moral, a, a moral roller coaster, in a sense, upon which they lived their spiritual lives. There was rebellion and distancing from God, always followed by God's punishment. God would raise up prophets or spokesmen to point out their sin and invite them to return to faithfulness. And when the pain was deep enough, they would usually repent and turn their hearts back to God. And he would forgive and things would be well, at least as well as they could be for a while. But then the people would give way to sin again. And it was just this endless cycle. And frankly, one from which there seemed to be little willingness on their part to change. Well, the fourth chapter of the book of Judges where our story begins, describes the current moment with a refrain that echoes again and again throughout the book. It says, The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord sold them into the hands of a pagan king. And the pattern continued and continued. Now, <clears throat> there's one further historic note. Uh, after Joshua's death, the leadership of this loose confederation of tribes fell to what were known as judges, uh, tribal chiefs. They were chosen by God uh, to be interim-type leaders of the people. And in some, they, in some ways, they were, they were almost a group of superheroes when you read their stories. They're a little bit like this picture seems to, to capture him. They come, come in to save the day. The history book from which we draw our selected story today tells us there were, there were at least 12 of these judges who ruled and guided in some way. Some were good, some not so good, and the endless cycle continued. Now, the central human character in our text for today is a woman named Deborah. Now, her name meant a bee, and her life, as you'll quickly discover, surely lived up to that busy descriptor because she was, she was, she had a resume that was stunning, filled with all sorts of things that she did in life. Deborah was uh, the wife of a man named Lipidoth, about whom we know next to nothing, except that his name meant torches or flashes. But it was his busy wife whose life showed up the, 
with a greater blindness than brightness than his. Well, let me fill out some of Deborah's resume. She was a she was a prophetess. She had a gift for being able to hear and discern the voice of God to share with the people. Now, there were other women, though few in number, who also filled the prophetic role in the Old Testament and, and even some in the New Testament, but her, her place among this number is still worth note. But Deborah was also a, a judge, as we've already mentioned. She was one of the identified leaders who helped guide the whole tribal association of Israel. And she, as far as we know, was the only woman to hold such a role. Judges were people held to a high regard, leaders before whom the people would come to have their disputes settled, as well as to hear a word from God. Deborah held court under a palm tree, a tree that quickly came to bear her name, and it was in the hill country, not inside any one of the cities, but in a more in-between place, accessible to people who would come to her from all kinds of directions for her guidance. And it's notable that the people were not going to the Israelite priest for guidance. The religious leaders of that day had often become as tainted as the surrounding culture. But there was something about Deborah that set her apart and drew people to her. We said that to be a prophetess as a woman was not completely rare, but there are no other women who were judges and only one man who was both a prophet and a judge, a man named Samuel. So Deborah's resume is impressive. And as we'll quickly see, it became filled with even further titles and accomplishments. The king of Canaan, to whom God had sold out these rebellious Israelites, was named Jabed. And he ruled from a palace that was set up in Hazor. It was a city in the northern hill country. And the commander of his army was named Sisera. He was a fierce soul who commanded a, a well-equipped army of thousands. In fact, it says he had 900 iron chariots. They were the tanks of the day. They were a part of his state-of-the-art arsenal. And Sisera made it one of his military goals to cruelly oppress the Israelites. And he had been doing that for 20 long years. There was no place that was safe for the Israelites. The main, the main roads that, that they traveled were abandoned. Villages were unfortified. They didn't have a shield or a spear counted among their weapons, the story says. They were easy prey, and so they had to make their way by winding back roads off the beaten paths, hoping they wouldn't encounter any troops that would torment or capture them. It was a pitiful time for the people. Two long decades of oppression. And so the people came to Deborah, and the poem version of the story puts it this way. They cried out, wake up, wake up, Deborah. Take captive your Israelites. They're, they're trying to get her attention. Hear our desperate pleas for relief. Go to God and ask him to answer our cries. And a word does come from God to Deborah. God gave her a vision of victory along with the people to do it and the plans for how it should be brought about. And she sent for the commander of Israel's armies, a man named Barak. He didn't have much to work with. Uh, he Remember, he was going up against these iron chariots and it was versus Israelites who didn't even have the rudimentary uh, short uh, shields or spears. But, but this was the word of the Lord. And interestingly, Deborah does not go to visit Barak, but sends a messenger to tell him to come and see her. And he did. He came to visit her, maybe under her notable palm tree, and she told him what God had revealed. 
Barak was to lead an attack on Sisera's Canaanite army. In fact, Deborah described it this way, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you to go. The promise of God was that he would lure Sisera into some kind of a trap where God would hand them over to the Israelites. Sisera with all that mighty army and fierce iron chariots versus Barak and his poorly equipped army, but God was going to use a river and his might to win the victory. And so, maybe not surprisingly, Barak balks a bit at the command. He doesn't say he won't go, but he does add a remarkable condition. He says to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. This mighty commander makes a condition for his courage, the company of this remarkable woman, prophet, and judge of Israel. There is an amazing picture painted here of of a man's fear and a woman's courage. Deborah could do an amazing job leading under a palm tree, but to follow him into battle, that was something, that was something more. But Deborah quickly responds to Commander Barak, and I'd love to have heard the tone in her voice and seen the expression on her face when she says to him, very well, I'll go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Together, Deborah and Barak travel to a place where Barak sends out a call for troops, and 10,000 men, especially from the two northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, answer the call. But remember, that's 10,000 scarcely equipped troops perhaps armed with handmade spears and pitchforks against an army that would have dramatically dwarfed them in both size and resources, perhaps four to tenfold. So when Sisera, the Canaanite commander, hears that Barak is rallying rallying troops near Mount Tabor, Sisera quickly marshals his own iron chariots and well-armed men to cross over the modest Kishon River and meet them in battle. Against all these odds, Deborah still tells Barak, go. This day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands and then further reassures them that the Lord has gone ahead of you. The real commander in this conflict was going to be God himself. Well, Barak and his poorly equipped men made their way out, but it was with God, the commander of all the universe who went before him. The Song of Deborah puts it this way, from the heavens, the stars fought, from the courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. And suddenly and divinely, a flood-swollen river causes the iron chariots of the Canaanite army to be bogged down in the mud, and the hoofs of the horses weighed down in the muck, and Barak's army struck terror and defeat into all of those enemies. And not a single Canaanite soldier survived in the battle. Sisera, seeing the army was being defeated, got off his his mount and fled on foot to a tent of someone he thought was an ally, the tent of a man named Heber, a descendant of the tribe from whom Moses had long ago taken a wife. Sisera was not met by Heber, though, but by his wife, Jael, the second woman to step on the stage in the the story. Come, Lord, come right in, she says to this fleeing commander. And then these amazing words, don't be afraid. Both Deborah and Jael had become the calming voices of women to settle down the troubled hearts of mighty men. 
I'm thirsty, Sisera says to Jael. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin, not full of water, but milk. And then she covered him up like a mother might tuck in a troubled child. And Sisera, before falling off to sleep, says to Jael, Stand guard at the doorway of the tent for me. If someone comes by and asks, Is anyone here? Say no. But as soon as Sisera is fast asleep, Jael picks up a, a long tit peg and a hammer and quietly approaches the sleeping commander. And with a mighty blow, she drives the tent stake through Sisera's temple and all the way down into the ground beneath him. Whoa, fierce ending to a mighty foe. Soon after, Barak, the Israelite commander, arrives at the door of Jael's tent in pursuit of, of Sisera. Come, Jael says, I'll show you the man you're looking for. I suspect that Barak thought he'd find Sisera hiding in some shadowy corner of the tent where he could finally confront him and doing it, do him in and claim the victory for himself. But to his great surprise, he found the dead commander pinned to the ground with a tent peg through his head by a woman. Now, Deborah's prophecy had been fulfilled. The battle had been won, but the honor and the blessing of taking out the enemy commander had fallen to a woman, or as the beautiful poem puts it, most blessed of women, Jael. He asked for water, and she gave him milk, but her hand reached for a tent peg and a workman's hammer, and Sisera lay dead at her feet. Okay, you've, you've hung on with me. you surely got to be saying to yourself, how in the world could this gory tale have anything to say to us in terms of a, of a Mother's Day celebration? And it's here that I need to take you to a last chosen line from Deborah's song where it says that Israel's life lay in ruins until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. That's Judges 5, verse 7. So why does this prophet, judge, warrior, poet give herself a description of having risen in Israel as a mother? Well, in the minutes that remain, I'd like to point out some remarkable traits of Deborah that can well be ascribed to many that would gratefully give the title mother. First, I'm reminded from her story how, how Deborah and how most mothers are supreme multitaskers. Deborah was a wife, a homemaker, perhaps even an actual mother, a caregiver for children, though we're not told anything about an extended family. Perhaps she was just a mother to Israel, but that in and of itself was enough. Mothers settle all kinds of things. They settle family disputes, perhaps not under palm trees, but in myriads of challenging settings that life provides, usually without the benefit of shade. Mothers are a wonder. A stay-at-home mom once got so fired up with people thinking about her life being so easy in the shade that she wrote a letter to Ann Landers, who was a longtime newspaper advice columnist at the time, and she gave this as her job description, how her role is played out. She said, I am a wife, friend, confidant, personal advisor, lover, referee, peacemaker, housekeeper, laundress, chauffeur, interior decorator, gardener, painter, wallpaperer, dog groomer, veterinarian, manicurist, barber, seamstress, appointment manager, financial planner, bookkeeper, money manager, personal secretary, teacher, disciplinarian, entertainer, psychoanalyst, nurse, diagnostician, public relations expert, Dietitian and nutritionist, baker, chef, fashion coordinator. Well, the letter went on. She says she, she writes letters for, for, for both sides of her, her family. I'm also, she says, a, 
a travel agent, speech therapist, plumber, and an automobile maintenance and repair expert. She added that during the course of the day, I'm supposed to be cheerful and to look radiant. I could read you more, but you get the overwhelming description of what this writer was trying to say. At least what all mothers would have to say. They do so much. And this is just the job description for a mother, a woman who doesn't also successfully work outside the home. Somebody has said it's not easy being a mother. If it were, fathers would do it. I'll say it again. Mothers are a wonder. When you have a complicated, impossible, multifaceted job to do, call a mom. And in the middle of this discussion about multitasking mothers, I need to say something to us guys. Now, the women that are listening can stay on the line, but this is especially for the guys. I, I suspect the women will appreciate what I have to say, too, though. Uh, this past week, not one but two articles appeared in national newspapers about the challenges that women are especially experiencing during this whole coronavirus sheltering in place. One article in the New York Times was titled, Nearly Half of Men Say They Do Most of the Homeschooling. 3% of women agree. And the other in the Washington Post was titled, A Working Woman's Quarantine Experience. I'll spare you all the, the deep details, but a few notable points are worth pointing out to us men. The Times reports that homeschooling is being handled disproportionately by women, though, though fathers don't necessarily agree. Nearly half of those dads who have children under 12 report spending more time on it than their spouse, but just 3% of the women say their spouse is doing more work. 80% of the women say they are spending more of the time. Housework also is considered in uh, the survey they did. Even though men and, and women are both doing more uh, when it comes to housework, they still aren't equally dividing the work. 70% of women say they're fully or mostly responsible for housework during the lockdown, and 66% say so for childcare. But again, men and women see things differently. Then the article adds that past research using time diaries has consistently shown that men often overestimate the amount they do <laughs> and that women do more. The article, after a lot more statistics, moved to this challenging conclusion. It says one reason women are doing more unpaid labor during lockdown is simple. They always do. Though men in recent years have increased the time they spend on domestic duties, it says, particularly childcare, many people still believe they are primarily a woman's responsibility. In the Washington Post article, it says that working moms that are juggling outside jobs and childcare are doing it with an intensity that has never existed before. They're homeschooling while working. They're preparing lunches while working. They're policing screen time while working and dealing with waves of guilt, stress, and resignation that come from not doing any of those things particularly well. Tasks that had been outsourced to schools and grandparents and nannies and sitters are now falling squarely on the parents and disproportionately on mothers. And it goes on to say, although men have nearly tripled the amount of time they spend on child care since 1965, imbalances persist in what's been called the invisible work of parenting. Women shouldering the planning, the organization, and remembering of everything that needs to be remembered. Well, Deborah was a wife, a prophetess, a judge, a warrior, a poet songwriter. She rose a mother in Israel, leader, problem solver, future predictor, courager, bolsterer, and much more. Now, she did have some help, but 
as she predicted, it uh, especially was going to come to her from a woman, a hammer-wielding, tent-peg-piercing wonder of another woman, the gentle or not-so-gentle J.L. who dispatched the Canaanite commander who was hiding in her tent. And long before the Israelite commander finally arrived on the scene to say to her, Oh, I was going to take care of that. You should have waited till I got here. Moms are multitasking wonders. But this mom, Deborah, was also a skillfully wise counselor. I wonder how many conflicts were resolved at the feet of Deborah under that famous palm tree. How, how many parties came before her to air their grievances against each other and how Deborah would wisely work through all the issues and help lead them to some kind of wise settlement. My mother was a wise woman. My dad was a good and wise man too, but my mom had a way of weighing challenges and finding solutions that were especially valuable. Sometimes it was by refereeing conflicts that bubbled up between three of us kids in the family. Now, I've already been rebuffed by one of my sisters for an insinuation in an earlier sermon that they were responsible for some of the squabbles. I meant that in jest, but I'll steer away from it right now and just say that we all made our contributions to our sibling rivalry. But when conflict would arise, my mom had a deep way of being able to listen to each of us, often to listen before she would ever speak, to, to weigh, to reason, to carefully consider even before she would pass any kind of parental judgment. There's something about a mother that most often listens with both the head and the heart. There were times for my dad when solutions were more black and white. We were to do what we were supposed to do just because that's the way it was. But my mom, she listened with her head, but especially with her heart. There were even times when her heart went to bat for me against my dad. She somehow understood what it meant to be a little boy and not yet a man. She understood how my heart could be pulled in different directions and that all of life was not just about work, but also about play. She, she understood something very important about my soul. When it comes to being a leader in life, there's something to be said for leading and problem solving, but it needs to include all of the heart and all of the soul and all of the mind. And too often I fear that we men make dangerous assumptions about our capacities to, to know all there needs to be known about life. Sometimes things are very black and white for us. We think with our heads, but not also as fully with our hearts at times. We're, we're great with logic, but we're, we're short on the important value of intuition. We think sometimes more than we feel. I don't think this story of Deborah or many other women that we find in scriptures to make some strong argument about roles that men and women should fill in the kingdom. But I do think it makes a strong statement that God is always looking for open hearts through which he can make his wise counsel known. If he can't find a willing man, he has often worked mightily through a willing woman. It was Jesus's mother who humbly said to the angel of God, I'm the Lord's servant. I don't I don't know how this is all going to happen, but if this is God's will, then let it happen through me. While the disciples hid in fear after Jesus' crucifixion and death, the women went to the grave, found it empty, and then joyfully delivered the good news to the skeptical hiding men. God uses amazing means to communicate his word and his wisdom to the world. One time he even gave a donkey a divine voice, his own divine voice, in order to talk to a man named Balaam. Now, I don't know if it was a boy donkey or a girl donkey, but it surely got Balaam's attention. When God needs to solve one of our world's problems, he often uses a man, but he also quite often 
works through a woman like Deb, De like Deborah. I suspect that half or more who are listening to my words just now are women. I want you to know how much God and we value you. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I learned so much about the complexities of life through the influence of my wise mother. Now, there's more about Deborah, and she also was a, was a faith influencer. Deborah was a judge, but she also was a prophetess. She was someone who provided God's human voice through whom he could speak. If there was ever a time that needed to hear a word from God, it was during this desperate time in Israel's history. And, and Deborah was more than just this multitasking, uh, wise helper there. She was inspired by God to speak for God. The people who came to Deborah weren't just trying to get their problems solved by a judge. There was a sense that there was something about Deborah that seemed tied to something holy, that she and God had some clear sense of connectedness. It's interesting that in Deborah's time, people didn't flock to Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where priests, professional religious people, could be found. The priest, it seems, could not be trusted when it came to faith. Their lives were as contaminated by sin as most of the people. And so the people came to sit at Deborah's feet under the palm tree that bore her name to ask and hear from her needed words, not just on how to solve their problems, but what God might have to say to them. Can we ever give enough credit to mothers for the godly influence they have on our lives? I heard about a preacher who once got up to deliver a sermon on Mother's Day and he began it with this perfect tribute. He said, my mother practices what I preach. To be honest, if it weren't for moms, I'm not sure that faith would ever make it from one generation to the next. And that's not to say that I haven't seen wonderfully committed and faithful fathers, but often it's the mom who supplies the anchor for faith in many a home. It's often said that it's the mother's at the on the mother's knee that the first Bible stories are spoken into a young child's life from her lips that prayers are first heard and learned. Not a few struggling churches would have to, to shut down were it not for the vital influence of the faithful company of mothers determined to keep faith alive. Over past years, I enjoyed the remarkable privilege of traveling to Ukraine and encouraging church planning and leadership development and, and uh, the beginning of a, a Bible institute there to train kingdom leaders. And on the first trip to visit what was known as the Mother Church in Kherson, Ukraine, I stood to preach one Sunday and I looked out over the crowd and I quickly saw that it was filled with many aging women, babushkas, they call them, grandmothers. Women who had kept the faith alive during some of the most severe times of the communist state's oppression. Sometimes they were the only ones who could safely gather for prayer. And they quite fiercely refused to let go of their faith. And I couldn't help but wonder whether the church would be in Ukraine today if it were not for this grand line of mothers and grandmothers, babushkas. When Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, he said he was reminded of this young man's faith, but it was a faith that first lived in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice, and that is a wonderful consequence now lived in young Timothy. We're told almost nothing about Timothy's Greek father, but Timothy's mother and grandmother were the fountain of his faith. <clears throat> There's an old Jewish proverb that says, God couldn't be everywhere, so he made mothers. Most of the time in ancient days and still today, prophets were men, but in, the case, in this case, God spoke through a woman. 
Sometimes for God, it's not so much about gender as it is the openness of the heart. And in this dark day for Israel, when many men were silent, God spoke through a mother. Israel was brought back to God through the influence of this godly woman, this mother, whose heart stayed connected to God when the rest of the world was fully disconnecting from him. A woman with an open heart and through whose lips God could speak a desperately needed word to the world. Multitasker, problem solver, faith-influencing mother, but more courage-inspirer. Aren't you glad, guys, that God chose women to uh, to be the ones to have babies? He knew that we couldn't have the courage to pull it off. You ever heard about a mom fainting in the delivery room? They're the ones that's doing all the work, but the husbands are the ones that are lying on the on the floor. At least today, they're wearing scrubs, so when they fall, they can. It's a clean fall. Jimmy Smith uh, began his celebrated pro football career with the Dallas Cowboys, and he ended up with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He tells a story about his mom, Etta. First time he caught a touchdown pass, Jimmy said he was 11 years old, and he did it on about 10, 10 yard. He did it after about a 10 yard wide out. He he caught the ball, and then he began streaking for the end zone, which is a long ways down the field. And he said that as he was running, though, he saw a blur going by him, and he glanced over to see his mama, Etta, who had come down from the stands and had caught up with him on the 50-yard line and outran him to the end zone, shouting all the way, Run, baby, run! Only a mother. Many a time, it's a mother who comes down from the stands, takes the lead, who cheers the players on, who energizes everyone for the victory. Run, baby, run. I'm struck by how all the men of our ancient story were, were paralyzed by the circumstances and how this woman, this mother, steps in to give them this much-needed courage. Deborah summons the commander Bayrak to give him his marching orders. That must have been some scene under that palm tree. I can just imagine her saying, you do see that palm tree has my name on it, don't you? Or more accurately, you need to know that God has a word for you and he's going to say it through me. Bayrak was a soldier who considered the odds of any military strategy he knew how well-equipped the Canaanite army was and how poorly resourced his was. His soldiers did not have a chance against those Canaanite chariots, so he never would have considered this on his own. And yet, he doesn't argue with Deborah, though he may have doubted her. There was something about her that must have inspired him. She had spunk and courage and faith. She possessed something that he didn't have, and that was confidence. And if he were going to even entertain the thought of taking on Sisera and his army, it would have to be with Deborah by his side. There was something about her confidence. If you go with me, I'll go. But if not, I'm not. It doesn't say much for Barak, but it speaks volumes for Deborah. There's a cartoon that shows a, a little kid freckle-faced in the hallway, his pajamas unstrapped, his diaper is bagging, and he's got a teddy bear dangling from his hand, and he's standing in front of a of his his mom's bedroom, which is shut the door and the door hangs on the door hangs this sign closed for business, motherhood out of order. Well, a toddler can't read, but the truth is when mom's in trouble, we're all in trouble. When she gives out, we can't keep going. When Bayrock, but when Bayrock and his and his men found themselves in uh, the battlefield, 
with all the soldiers in the chariots posed against them. It was Deborah who shouted to the soldiers, Go, this is the day. She said to Commander Barak, The day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands, has not the Lord gone on ahead of you? That mother was on duty. And with that word of passionate confidence, Barak began the charge, followed by his men, and the Canaanite army with God's great help was routed and defeated in every every man of them. Barak saw the Canaanites, but Deborah saw God. It was a mother's courage that inspired that battle. Barak's name meant thunderbolt or lightning, but it was Deborah who was the real powerhouse when it came to courage. And the battle was won. The chariots had been mucked down in the muddy floodwaters of the Kishon River. Seasoned soldiers had panicked, and the Israelites, emboldened by the remarkable and divine upsetting the odds, won the victory. Sometimes we think the battle goes to the strong, but more often it is to the courageous. This mother's courage became Israel's hope. What they could not do, what they could not win, God had made possible, even calling in all the stars of heaven to influence the field of conflict. Multitasker, wise counselor, faith influencer, courage inspirer, and one last, one last takeaway. She's a selfless actor. When the celebration song gets written after this victory, where does Deborah start the praise? With the princes of Israel. Her song begins, when the, princi- when the princes of Israel take their lead, praise the Lord. And then later it says, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Who are these princes and when, when did they lead? And if they did so, it was only after Princess Deborah took the first inspirational steps. Or who are these people who willingly offered themselves? Now, I didn't go into detail, but when Barak extended the call to arms for all those tribes in Israel, most of the 12 tribes were not eager volunteers. They didn't show up at all. There were actually two tribes that really deserved praise. But there was one tribe that just sat around their campfires thinking about it, and there were others that concluded that they, they lived too far away to even think about offering themselves to battle, and yet Deborah still sings their praises. She's a, she's a selfless mother. I think much of that has to do with the fact also that Deborah understood the true scale of worthiness in life. And so her song quickly went on to say, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. He's the one who makes the mountain quake with his coming. The clouds pour their rain to flood the rivers that bog down the chariots. Or as the prose part of the story closes, it says, On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. God subdued them. In the book of Hebrews, in the chapter we often call the roll call of the faithful, Hebrews 11, there's a listing of some of the ancient leaders in Israel about whom the writer says there's not time to tell, but included were names like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and even Barak. No mention of Deborah. Now, I don't think it was a gender thing because there are names of women that are on the roll call list too, but it it still makes me sad that Deborah didn't make it. One thought that came into my mind, though, was, well, it was a man who was making up the list, but then I remembered... Mothers often don't make the list, and they don't seem to care as much about it as men do. Someone suggested that when Barak finished mopping the Canaanite army up and finally turned to pursuing the fleeing commander Sisera, that he surely must have hoped that he would be able to kill him too, that he would have gotten the credit for the win. But when 
Jael said, come inside the tent, and she she showed Sisera nailed, his head nailed to the floor. I wonder if perhaps Barak hadn't said, well, I'll, I'll pass the road around to what you did for us. Yeah, like that happened. Deborah had warned Barak that the honor would not be his. But why did it have to go to a woman? As she had also said, a little bit of divine justice, perhaps. Now, Jael does get a shout out in Deborah's song as the most blessed of women. But in the end, a mother's greatest joy isn't about her heralded successes. Though, if you have a mother you're still living, I would strongly encourage you to say Happy Mother's Day to them in some meaningful way before the sun sets today. But moms have somehow always been content with sitting in the shadows, standing in the background. There is something supremely selfless about a mother. When I was young, if there was one serving of anything left at the table, my mom would always give it to somebody else in the family before her, especially if it was one of us kids. And in fact, I'm not sure, but there were times when she feigned not really being hungry at all, just so that we could be full. When Deborah wrote her song of praise, she even made it a duet. She allowed, invited Bayrak to have some parts to sing with her. Bayrak, this man who wouldn't march to war unless Deborah went with him, but she still made room for his voice, for his honor, for his place, even if it may have been less notable than hers. Isn't that like a mother? I wonder sometimes if all the world were led by mothers, if it might be a more peaceful place, less shoving and pulling and less demanding to be noticed and just more sweet contentment and peace. I, I love the way the song of Deborah is followed by this postscript. It says, Then the land had peace for four years. 20 years of trouble and turmoil until Deborah arose, arose a mother in Israel. And then came 40 years, a whole generation of peace. The fierce hold of the Canaanites broken. Israel could travel once more in the main caravan rats to do their trading. The families could sleep safely in unwalled Israelite villages. There would be times, again, in the more distant future when Israel would return to doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the endless pattern would continue. And there would have to be more judges who would try to help right the ship of state. But for these 40 years to come, there was going to be peace in the land. And it was largely because of a mother named Deborah. Today, and for many days, it's worth celebrating a mother's rise to fame. Both for us to praise this ancient mother and the many who are or have been a part of our lives today. You deserve all the praise we can give. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for uh, the influence that parents have on our lives. And I, I especially thank you for my mom. I thank you for the mothers that are listening to this and that have have poured so much of their lives into their families. I thank you for Deborah, this, this profound story about an amazing woman who did, who did so much for a country, for, for a, a group of people that she loved and for how much she loved you. Help her story to help inform us to be better children and parents. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
we're going to share at a time of communion. Uh, one of the most poignant descriptions of crucifixion, uh, crucifixion was written by John, and he says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. John knew she was standing there because he was standing there with her, and Jesus, as one of his last acts, made sure that his mother would have someone to care for her. And to her he said, Here is your son, looking to John, and to John, looking to his mother. This is your mother. There are few relationships more precious than that between a mother and a child, and this child was dying before his time, at least when you think of his tender age. But he was dying at just the right time for us. Think of that scene at the cross as we share this meal together. A mother's love, a son's sacrifice. God, for the bread that reminds us of your broken body and the cup, your poured out blood, we give you thanks. And in our, our minds, we remember your mother at the cross and how challenging it must have been for her. Thank you for loving us enough to give your life for her and for all of us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.